This is the story of how the great American illustrator inspired the great American filmmaker and his best friend. It's the story of George, Stephen, Norman, and many, many Benjamins. This week we examine, in broad strokes, the connections between Star Wars and Norman Rockwell. You've taken your first step into a larger world. Hello there, I'm Rowan Williams. I'm Baz McAllister. I believe you mean the award-winning Baz McAllister. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not one to blow my own clue horn. (laughs) Well, I knew you wouldn't mention it, so I thought we should say up top, Baz, a a great win through the week for for our Baz, uh, took home the Clarions Award, which is uh, in in Queensland, it's the um, Journalism Awards here in Queensland. For uh, well, they call it best three headlines, but basically means best headline writer. Yeah, pretty so much. So our boy, best headline writer in Queensland, Baz McAllister. Yeah. Um, it's an award basically for not being able to settle your mind to think about one thing without, <laughs> without double thinking it, which is you know what happens in my head when I write headlines. There you go. Anyway, anyway, welcome to Force Material. This is the show that's all about the secrets, stories, and source material of Star Wars. This week, we are going in-depth on uh, Norman Rockwell, a major uh, influence on both George Lucas um, and Steven Spielberg. Uh, we're going to skip the headlines this week. Usually, we'd open up with a look oh, at... Oh, but I'm um... so good at that. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? It feels yeah. like, you know, you've, you've got a gift and we're not giving it away. <laughs> but uh, but no, we, we, I, we, we're recording this a few days before uh, before we... Usually would, dear listeners, because I'm going to be out of the country for um, about a month, which may or may not affect the release of the podcast over the next couple of weeks. We'll, we'll see how we'll we go. We'll see how we go. You're going to be on a, a, a remote atoll. That's n- right. Not unlike Scarif. Not or... unlike Scarif. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm going to be in the Philippines for a month. Mm. Um, so, uh, interesting story about the Philippines. Um, the Ewok language is largely based on, uh, Tagalog, which is the ah, Filipino language, or at least one of the Filipino languages. Um, so yeah, I will be on, uh, on the island of Mindanao, um, which is the one with ISIS, but I won't be near, <laughs> I don't think I'll be near where ISIS is. Be, 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 so this could be, be famous careful. last words be if careful. there's no more podcasts after this. Can you go to the one with ice creams? <laughs> That would, that would be, go to that one. That would be better. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, but welcome to the show. Norman Rockwell. Norman Tell Rockwell. Tell me about him. Well, um, the story starts earlier this year when uh, the New York Times actually revealed the identity of a mystery buyer who bought Norman Rockwell's famous painting, Shuffleton's Barbershop, from the financially and legally troubled Berkshire Museum in Western Massachusetts. And the buyer is none other than the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art. Which is obviously making a lot of headlines at the moment. It's it's nearing yeah. completion. We've seen all the, the 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 want ads go out on social media. Yeah, it's uh, everybody's talking about this Lucas Museum of Narrative Art. Well, I think complete. It's it broke ground around early this year. Um, completion is not going to be for another few years, and not full completion anyway. But uh, they they're building it on like two car park lots in Los Angeles Expo Park, which is like south of the CBD. Mm-hmm. That's where George Lucas, the founder of the museum, is going to be hanging 
his dozens of Rockwells. <laughs> which <laughs> is not great. bad if you can get it. Yeah, among other things. So yeah. um, Shuffleton's Barbershop was painted in 1950. It's worth about 20 to 30 million. Uh, no one's entirely sure because it was going to be um, it was going to be auctioned. Um, it was actually given to this Berkshire Museum by Rockwell himself. Right. But the museum's kind of um, hit a bit of hard times and it planned to auction the painting off in November this year. But um, legal proceedings by various groups were open to try and stop this um, over fears that the painting would be acquired by a private buyer and just disappear from, from view mm. forever, you know? Mm. I think one of those groups consisted of some of Rockwell's children. Right. So they basically. It seems just... weird that the painting wouldn't just revert to Rockwell's children in the case of. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if they've donated it to this museum, <laughs> yeah. to we, the museum to then turn around and sell it, <laughs> yeah. is a bit. Uh, yeah. It's not very classy. Um, well, it looks like the, the Lucas Museum struck this sweetheart deal um, to keep the painting hanging in public. But before it went to auction, they were able to kind of come up with a proposal, which involves. Um, you know, a condition of the sale being that the uh, Norman Rockwell Museum, which is another museum near the the last one, and that's in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. it'll hang there for probably a couple of years, and eventually it'll make its way to the Lucas Museum, maybe hanging somewhere else first, but it'll be in constant public display awesome. for the whole time, which is great. Um, one of the uh, speculations and fears with a situation like this, said Lucas Museum director Don Bacigalupi, um, is that the painting would go into private hands and never be seen again. Our commitment is really making this painting available to the public in perpetuity, which is a great mission to have. So that's not uh, Lucas's first gift to the Rockwell Museum either. Um, in 2010, and, and you've done a significant amount of research on this, haven't you, for the for the website? Yeah, a while back. I mean, obviously, like he's, I'm sure there's been a lot of... Um... Yeah, I'm sure his Rockwell collection's only gotten bigger since <laughs> yeah. then. Yeah, uh, but he he donated uh, 1.5 million to the uh, Rockwell Museum itself to to make to take Rockwell's work on tour, and enable the museum to create new multimedia experiences and things for visitors, and uh, create an online media hub with podcasts and lectures about the artists. So you know, it was really just all about taking his message out there and taking Rockwell to the people. Yeah, which is great. Well, it it should be noted too, and like I'm sure we'll get into this over the podcast. Like mm-hmm. when we talk about taking Rockwell to the people, I mean. That's where he started. This exactly. isn't a case. I mean, with some artists, you know, especially with fine artists, sometimes the, the they might be huge names in the in the fine art world or, or the modern art world and, and not known to the public at all. Yeah. Whereas Rockwell was was you know quite an iconic figure in his day while he was alive. Yeah. Uh, unlike a lot of artists who uh, right. need to die first. So the um, the director of the Rockwell Museum, uh, Laurie Norton Moffat, said in a release, uh, this is a truly transformational grant, that 1.5 million. We're deeply grateful to George Lucas for supporting our commitment to students, teachers and lifelong learners everywhere, connecting them with Norman Rockwell's legacy in new and compelling ways. Which is fantastic. We should talk a bit here about, okay, so for those who don't know, who is Norman Rockwell? Mm. So, born in 1894, uh, Rockwell was an illustrator and painter, uh, best known for his contributions to the Saturday Evening Post over the course of almost five decades. He's best known for his work illustrating other people's stories. He illustrated more than 40 books and countless issues of the Saturday Evening Post, which at that time was a weekly literary magazine with fiction, non-fiction, cartoons, and more. Uh, it was actually the most widely circulated mag in the U.S., uh, Rockwell was discovered by editor George Horace Lorimer when he was just a 22-year-old unknown artist based in New York, where he grew up. That was 1916. Mm. He went on to create more than 4,000 works of art, um, including 300 pieces, which were covers for the Saturday Evening Post. Wow. That, that's a 
that's a body of work that puts most artists to shame. Isn't yeah, it? it's yeah. not it's not bad, is it? It's it's <laughs> it's, it's decent. After Star Wars got big, and, and and actually probably after he started raking in a bit of money from American Graffiti, uh, Lucas turned his eye towards uh, original Rockwells, and he treated himself by going out and buying his first Rockwell original boy and father baseball dispute. But I've also read that his first acquisition was Boy and Father Homework. They were both from the same kind of period of Rockwell. They're both Mm -hmm. in the 1962 Four Seasons calendar. And both of them depict a boy and his dad in quite a a strained relationship, you know. Um, The baseball dispute, obviously, they're kind of arguing over how a baseball play has gone. The boys all dressed up in the kit and the father's, you know, they're they're kind of sparking each other. And in the homework one, the boy and the father are sitting across the table and the father's kind of furrowing his brow trying to make sense of the boy's homework you know but the, the boy doesn't seem too happy about the situation so yeah um i want you all to remember this listeners this will become important in a moment <laughs> a boy and his dad in a strained relationship but after lucas bought that one his best mate steven spielberg couldn't believe lucas had quote a living breathing oil painting by the hand of this great american icon it was amazing spielberg once told cbs i went out and i got a bigger rockwell <laughs> You're going to need a bigger Rockwell. <laughs> yes. That's what you do. Since then, Lucas and Spielberg have collected Rockwell paintings and sketches the same way their fans probably collect Star Wars trading cards. Uh, in 2013, Lucas brought Norman Rockwell's Saying Grace at auction for a record $46 million. The duo's mutual love of Rockwell has been a, a key component of their legendary bromance, really, which began when... Francis Ford Coppola introduced them backstage at a student film festival at UCLA in 67. Uh, Lucas and Spielberg met again in the early 70s when Lucas was in LA to cast American Graffiti. Lucas was staying at the ramshackle Benedict Canyon address that he'd once called home while he attended USC's film school. A group of young filmmakers and cinephiles were also staying at the address, including Spielberg, who was working on the script for his first feature, The Sugarland Express. Lucas would come home after casting all day, and he and Spielberg would talk, soon becoming fast friends. Their mutual affinity for Rockwell makes sense when you consider that Rockwell was also a populist artist who had no trouble connecting with audiences, but wasn't always taken as seriously by highbrow critics, was he? No, not at all. Um, you know, he was he was the guy who painted magazine covers, right? Mm. You know, so people looked down on him and, and, and thumbed the nose at him. Like, serious art critics just didn't give him the uh, the credibility that he has only really found after he died. In, mm. Well, among certain people. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think still some people in the art world look down on him even today. Mm. I think people have been sneering at the Lucas Museum. Well, yeah, I was going to yeah. say, I mean, that's a big thrust to the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art because mm. that's, uh, you know, for Lucas, that's that's a big part of the appeal of doing all of this is that this is a narrative art isn't kind of appreciated the same way that more abstract art is, I suppose. Yeah. And so that's, I suppose, something that he's really trying to combat with this, um, with yeah. the Lucas Museum. It, it's great. It's it's a stab at elitism, which I think is, is too prevalent in the art world and it can be very alienating. Um, Lucas actually said uh, to CBS, you know, so many artists have a tendency to paint without emotion, without any connection to the audience. And both Steve and I are diehard emotionalists and we love to connect with the audience. Yeah. So it's, I mean, that's, you know, it's a big yeah. trademark of both of their work for sure. That's what they do. Um, Rockwell was above all famed for his ability to tell an entire story with just one image. Uh, and for Lucas, his love of Rockwell is part of a larger interest in this narrative art. And had, he'd been engaged in a years long quest to find a home for this museum, uh, which has fittingly ended up in LA where they became friends um, after failed wranglings with San Francisco and then for a while looked at Chicago. 
but both of those fell through for various reasons. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a real shame that the San Francisco thing didn't happen. What yeah. with Lucas's sort of connections to, but you know, hey, it'll be it's another another great reason to visit LA. I that, that's right. Yeah, and I suspect that you know you get more footfall in LA. Mm. Um, LA is kind of really taking off as an art. Uh, destination you know, at mm. the moment so um lots of new places opening up and of course you got the the older established places still there um looks and spielberg have uh, placed their rockwells on display once before in 2010 the smithsonian american art museum in washington dc hosted telling stories an exhibition of 57 rockwell pieces from both of their collections i wonder if like to a degree I suppose he's been working on this museum for a long time, though, hasn't it? I was yeah. going to say, I wonder if that sort of helped plant the seed for this museum for Maybe Lucas. Did, but I, yeah. I suppose it was something he was already mm. well, you know, into into planning in his head once they had that exhibit. <laughs> I can just I can see the way George's mind works. He's like, he's had this exhibition at the Smithsonian. He's like, yeah. you know, why do I need the Smithsonian to do this? That, exactly. Yeah. That's a hundred percent how it would have been. Definitely. Exactly. Someone at the Smithsonian <laughs> would have told him to do something a certain way, and he's gone who are you to tell me how to run my exhibit? And so he's going to cut out the middleman and yeah. open his own museum. Good on him. That's what money's for. <laughs> I guess so. That guess and so. buying Rockwells. Buying Rockwells. And I think last week we said it was for fighting Nazis. Also. Oh, yeah. Well, also, so yeah. telling people where to go, buying Rockwells and fighting Nazis is what money is for. <laughs> in the running tally. This sounds like a 40s American dad. Yeah. <laughs> That's what money's for. <laughs> So the uh, the curator of that Telling Stories um, exhibition was uh, Virginia Mecklenburg, who I think we've just slated because we've suggested that she's telling George what to do. But, but anyway, I'm sure Virginia. Look, did I'm a sure she's very. Job. I'm sure she's extremely well qualified and and was well placed to tell George what to do. Mm. Um, she said, "There's a different lens for looking at Rockwell because of how George and Stephen see their pictures. They're both drawn to Rockwell's stories, the way an entire narrative unfolds, because of how he crafts a single frame." Um, and the painting shadow artist usually hangs in George's office. Um, that's of an older man, perhaps a grandfather, making a shadow puppet dog by the light of an oil lantern as three kids look on wrapped. And we see the kids from, from the rear. We don't see their faces. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the entertainer using light and motion, which is where our industry started, Lucas told CBS. He loves that painting. Yeah. And I, I completely get why. It just sums up entirely what he does. So we, we've talked a bit about how George and, and Stephen started their their uh you know their their Rockwell trading card collections yeah so um, i i guess though we need to go further back how how did these guys sort of fall in love with Norman Rockwell in the first place mm. well um they both first came across his uh, work through the Saturday evening post covers of course um because they were ubiquitous at the time as we said um lucas told the smithsonian american art museum's i level blog i grew up in the heyday of the post magazine we subscribed and every week or so we'd get a picture in I would enjoy it, and I became a fan of illustrators. I liked drawing, I liked art, and I especially liked magazine illustration and comic illustration. So that was my first introduction to art in general. And then as I went, as I went on, I took history of art and a lot of other things that broadened my range of art appreciation, but at the same time, my heart stayed with illustrators. He also told the Oregonian, he grew up in the Norman Rockwell world of burning leaves on a Saturday morning. All the things that are in Rockwell's paintings, I grew up doing. So this is deeply ingrained in his childhood really yeah you know he gets the magazine every week he he see you know the stuff he sees on the cover is reflected in his own life in modesto mm. growing up in a small town in america you know mm. i guess burning leaves on a saturday morning yeah. whatever 
Um, yeah, or dad helping boy with homework, that kind of stuff. He yeah. just sees his own life reflected in, yeah. in these paintings and connects to them deeply. Which I suppose is, uh, you know, a, a sign of the importance of representation mm. uh, in, in media. So I, I guess not everyone will know that George flirted with uh, illustration in the early days. He um, he took up a bit of uh, a hobby of drawing pictures of, first of all, his beloved fast cars as a teenager. Of course. Uh, and that even uh, got him the rent for a summer of living away from Modesto in Malibu. Um, and there he did paintings of large-eyed beach bunnies, in his own words. It's so weird it is, to imagine it? George Lucas as sort of a beach bum, just, you know... Painting these these women on the beach like one of his French girls. It's very, <laughs> I don't know, yeah. it's hard to imagine. <laughs> anyway, well, that's what sold. Pictures of fast cars and pictures of uh, big-eyed beach bunnies. Um, so, he, you know, as we said, he made a bit of rent money off that. But he told the LA Times his true interest lay in angst-ridden portraits of morose, Giacometti-style, dark-eyed, struggling, suffering people that were not as commercial. So, you know, even in his teens then, Lucas was feeling this pull between his populist commercial instincts, you know, going with what sells and his interest in experimental work with no mass appeal. So, you know, obviously we can see that in the difference between THX 1138 and Star Wars. Isn't yeah. It? Like, I mean, it sounds, you know, when he says that, you know, that's, he was more interested in these, uh, these struggling, suffering people. It's, it's exactly the same. It's him saying, you know, oh, I, I really want to go and do these small experimental independent films that nobody <laughs> sees, yeah. but I just have to keep making Star Wars movies. So after he graduated from high school in Modesto, uh, Lucas planned to go to the Art Center in Los Angeles to study. Uh, but his father, the real life Owen Lars to Lucas real life Luke Skywalker, refused to pay <laughs> for it. I just need you for another season and uh, then, you know, you can go to the art college next year. Yeah, there's so yeah. much uh, so much of George's dad in Owen. It's it's kind of not, not yeah. funny. So that was uh, George Walton Lucas Sr., who was a guy who owned a stationery store in Modesto and clearly didn't subscribe to big dreams. Uh, George said, my father didn't want to have an artist in the house, so I ended up going into anthropology instead. Uh, and here's where we come back to boy and father dispute over baseball. <laughs> boy and father dispute over art college. Um, you can kind of see why his first acquisition in a way was like a painting of a, a boy with a strained relationship with his dad. Can't yeah. You, you know, like yeah. if, if that's, I don't know an awful lot about George's relationship with his parents beyond, you know, the, the bare bones. The stuff that he's talking the about publicly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, you can kind of see that they, they may be, didn't see eye to eye on a few things. Yeah, yeah, and this being one of them. Yeah, but uh, you know, it didn't. Uh, it wasn't all horrible. Um, Lucas eventually got into USC and transferred to the film program there from anthropology, and he would always maintain an interest in both illustration and anthropology. So I guess, in a way, the the path that he was set on just contributes to this glorious hole that he became. You know, mm. he, he wouldn't be the same guy if he hadn't messed around with illustration in his youth and mm. hadn't done a little bit of anthropology and then probably got his love for Joseph Campbell from there. Yeah. Then the film school kind of gives him the technical expertise to actually go on and do what he did. So without that path, we wouldn't have had Star Wars. So with, uh, you know, the, the melding of those disciplines, he actually credits Rockwell with that as much as anybody, really. He told iLevel blog, I've always been interested in anthropology and I've always been interested in, in art that speaks to the time in which it was made. As somebody that records a time, I think Rockwell was brilliant at it because it's not just recording it, he captures the emotion and more importantly the fantasy, the ideal of that particular time in American history. So you really get a sense of what America was thinking during those years 
and what their ideals were and what was in their hearts. Ultimately, it's that idealism, the sense that this isn't the way things were, this is the way things should have been, that most appeals to Lucas about Rockwell's work. For me, the interest is mythological, he told the LA Times. There's the myth of patriotism, the myth of religion, the myth of America as a wonderful, bucolic place where everyone is created equally and good people succeed. Rockwell taps into our best aspirations for ourselves. You can kind of see that in American graffiti as well. Yeah, I was going to say, like, when when he's talking about, um, you know, capturing the emotion and the fantasy and the ideal of a particular time in American history and, you know, what what were people thinking and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that he could just as easily be describing American graffiti as any one of Rockwell's works. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of a a very Rockwellian film, isn't it? You know, it, it's full of these little shots that could be tableaus, that could be covers for the Saturday evening yeah, post. If 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it kind of preserves that time perfectly. I guess if there's one thing that really ties Lucas's work with Rockwell's then, beyond that ability to tell a story visually, it's a certain uh, innocence and naivety. Um, that idealism, that naivety, that innocence is Norman Rockwell, Lucas told Eye Level. And Spielberg, funnily enough, has described Lucas the same way, pretty much, that Lucas is talking about Rockwell. Um, the first time Lucas showed a rough cut of Star Wars to his peers, the screening... This is the famous screening everybody knows. The screening yeah, yeah, yeah. was a disaster. They end up at a, a Chinese restaurant or something afterwards, and Brian De Palma basically writes the the Star Wars opening crawl there. Um, but, uh, you know, after that initial screening... And, and you know, to be fair, the, 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 what they were shown was... It was very incomplete. Yeah. Uh, there was uh, World old- War Two movie <laughs> yeah. footage instead of you know the the death. You know, again, the story everybody kind of knows. But after the screening of all these sort of Lucas showing it to all his mates, who are all these iconic seventies directors and you know new Hollywood directors in their own right, Spielberg was the only one who came away thinking that the movie would be uh, a hit. He said, this movie is going to make $100 million, and I'll tell you why. It has a marvellous innocence and naivety in it, which is George, and people will love it. At one stage of his life, Lucas could have been the child depicted in Rockwell's boy-reading adventure story, um, and he arguably spent most of his career then telling stories to that boy. Mm. On the one hand, Star Wars is a film for young people, a film for 12-year-olds that taps into the Norman Rockwell world of bold adventures, Lucas told the LA Times. But then, on the darker side, it explores the psychology of our relationships with our parents, our government, and some things not at all Rockwellian. So, while Spielberg's collection consists mostly of Rockwell's completed paintings, it's interesting too, especially in light of, you know, a lot of what we talked about about Lucas in the past, Mm. Lucas's consists largely of sketches, yeah. Uh, perhaps a reflection of his belief that no piece of art is ever really finished. <laughs> uh, Lucas told my level with Rockwell, the pencil sketches are as illuminating and as interesting as the paintings, sometimes even more interesting. He simplified his style very much during the 1960s and late 50s, and I like his earlier works, and I like the sketches of the later works because they have much more detail in them, and they're much more elaborate. Is there any truth to the rumour that he's going to go back and uh, finish the Rockwell paintings? <laughs> with, uh, uh, with computer-generated imagery? Yeah, that'd, yeah. that'd be doing the, dirty, the family even <laughs> dirtier than just selling off their, off their paintings. Um, in some cases, Lucas owns the sketch and Spielberg owns the finished painting. Mm. Um, and they were able to bring them together for that joint Smithsonian exhibition we were talking about. So Lucas sets them up and Spielberg knocks them down. <laughs> yes. 
one of those works, Happy Birthday, Miss Jones, demonstrates a belief of Lucas's that would help make the Star Wars universe feel so full of life. So this is an illustration, Happy Birthday, Miss Jones, that depicts a teacher uh, who's been moved by her class, marking her birthday with gifts on her desk and writing Happy Birthday, Jonesy on the blackboard. And the post ran it with this copy. Children must learn to multiply this by that and come out correct usually, else what's the use of growing up into a world full of income tax blanks? But education is vexation. Often Miss Jones gets so weary of trying to hammer data into little craniums that she yearns to be shipwrecked on a desert isle, and often the little craniums get so weary of Miss Jones. Period. Then one day, surprise! Over the cold, emotionless number work on the blackboard are scrawled words warm with sentiment. Tomorrow, the acutely quiet posture of the scholars will have deteriorated into normal squirms, and the teacher's smile will have deteriorated. Period. But right now, Norman Rockwell has captured a moment when Miss Jones knows she loves these kids, and the kids know they love Jonesy. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> um, yeah, the the, uh, the the post had an um, has an archivist uh, called Diana Denny. Um, she went into a few more of the little details in that uh, painting, which really kind of bring it to life. Um, she pointed out the eraser and chalk dust on the floor, indicating that there was an eraser fight while waiting for the teacher to show up. <laughs> and there's a kid with a red shirt who still has an eraser on his head. So like either either the class clown or someone's just landed it on his head and he's frozen when she walked in the room. Yeah. Uh, which is great. Um, a reader wrote in that the artist had captured the full loving beauty of what is called teaching in that sweet face. But another reader wrote in to complain, why did he make the school teacher so mousy looking? Um, alas, <laughs> even Norman Rockwell couldn't please all the people all the time. <laughs> but it's those background details you're talking about that flesh out the story of the image. And that's what Lucas loved most about Norman Rockwell. Mm. Um, he told Eye Level, I like the craftsmanship of the sketch, but the actual painting itself demonstrates that with Rockwell, every person is a character, which is what we always aim for in the movies. We have to make sure that the extras and everybody that's on the screen has a personality, a life. They aren't just nameless, faceless drones that walk through the shot. And a lot of artists don't bother with that. You look at the Star Wars films, they are the epitome of what Lucas is talking about. Yeah. There. I mean, every every background character has got his own life, and we know about it because they've got their own novels, because, uh, or Pablo, Pablo Hidalgo has written a visual dictionary <laughs> yeah. entry about their hair. But ultimately, you know, like, th- that comes from the... The films themselves, which, yeah. which make the characters seem so interesting and, and seem so full of life in those backgrounds. Indeed. Uh, interestingly enough, Rockwell actually intended that painting to be a tribute to someone who had inspired him. His eighth grade teacher, Julia M. Smith, who had encouraged him to draw. Years after he painted this one, he got a letter from her caregiver who said that although almost blind, Miss Smith asked friends to describe Rockwell's covers each time they appeared in the post. Oh, that's yeah. great. It's interesting too, uh, speaking of, you know, character of paintings being inspired by eighth grade teachers. I mean, Maz Kanata in, um, in The Force Awakens mm, is yeah. inspired by J.J. Uh, Abrams' old English teacher. And she was also uh, Rick Carter, the, the production designer. She was um, his English teacher as well, years before um, yeah. J.J. So um, Yoda was uh, Einstein, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I don't think right. Einstein ever was a teacher of, of George Lucas's. But, no, you know, but, but yeah. I mean, you know. Same kind of, a figure occupying the same kind of uh, space. It's interesting too when, you know, when you look at that painting and 
we're talking about the the level of detail in you know in in the kids and in in the in in the classroom and the way that it feels so real and lived in and we talked about how that relates to Star Wars mm. but i mean that's that's such a trademark of of Spielberg as well especially in the way that he you know if you look at one of it your jaws but one of <laughs> one of the best scenes in the movie is is when Brody's son is just copying his dad at the dinner table because it comes off as a real exchange a yeah. real thing that kids and parents do and just a real moment that that i mean it feels spontaneous it feels lived in it makes brody feel real yeah it makes his family feel real it makes the stakes then of you know protecting his family seem real you know and it's just this one little throwaway moment but there's something very rockwellian uh, about that you know especially when you look at something um, like, you know, Happy Birthday, Miss Jones. Yeah, you can see it in, in that picture. Like, you, you can't see the kids' faces. Again, they're all facing away from the viewer. But you can tell, you can see their faces reflected in her face. You know yeah. exactly what they're looking like. You know their expressions because you can see in her expression how they've affected her. So it's a, you know, that symbiotic relationship between adult and kid is, is a big part of what Rockwell does. And clearly, it's a, been a major influence on, on Spielberg particularly. Maybe not Lucas so much, mm. but definitely Spielberg. Spielberg's favourite Rockwell is um, involves kids as well. Well, that kid. Um, it's Boy on a High Dive, and that's the one that speaks to him louder than any other one. And that depicts a kid lying flat on a 20-foot-high diving board looking down at the drop below with his eyebrows like about three inches above his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> um, he said uh, to Eye Level Blog, I've always loved that painting. It means a lot to me because we're all on diving boards hundreds of times during our lives, taking the plunge or pulling back from the abyss. For me, that painting represents every motion picture just before I commit to directing it. Just that one moment before I say, yes, I'm going to direct that movie. For Schindler's List, I probably lived on that diving board for 11 years before I eventually took the plunge. So that painting spoke to me the second I saw it. When I saw that the painting was available to add to my collection, I said, well, not only is it going to be in my collection, but it is going in my office so I can look at it every day of my life. (laughs) And Rockwell's youngest son, uh, Peter, actually posed for Boy on High Dive. So it's one that probably means quite a lot to uh, Norman Rockwell yeah. as, as well. Um, uh, Peter said that his his father always said a good model had to be able to raise his eyebrows halfway up his forehead to look surprised. I could never get my eyebrows up that far, he said, except for that terrible time when I had to crawl out on the end of a board he had rigged up to extend from the studio balcony. Remember that magazine cover of the frightened kid out on the end of a diving board, the boy with the eyebrows all the way up to his forehead? Well, that was me, and I was scared stiff, he told the Smithsonian. (laughs) Um, Spielberg put a Rockwell in one of his films. Um, In Empire of the Sun, a a young boy played by Christian Bale is put to bed by his parents in a scene that recalls Rockwell's freedom from fear. Um, That's that great painting. It's one of, I think, four the Four Freedoms, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, where um, you know, there's a parent, a couple of parents tucking in their kids while the dad holds a newspaper, and you can see the the World War Two headline, a horrific headline on the paper. Uh, later in Empire of the Sun, uh, we see that the boy keeps a reproduction of the painting itself during his captivity in a prison camp. Was the headline on the newspaper an award winning headline, though, <laughs> or just a just a standard? Who can say? Just an ordinary <laughs> schmucks in, in Rockwell's world, possibly. Yes. <laughs> the way uh, the way Rockwell actually put his pictures together is very interesting he composed each one of his works the way a film director sets up a shot so he picked out the props he organized the lighting he even auditioned models properly to make sure that they would act out the roles he expected them to play in his pictures and uh, this is all according to a cbs article from 2010 
Um, at the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge, there's Rockwell Studio preserved as he left it, um, with walls of you know covered of with his Saturday Evening Post covers, thousands of photographs from which he sketched and painted. So um, I found the uh, the guide to telling stories at the Smithsonian online, the the uh, resource for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in there it says, once Rockwell had formed his idea, he chose models, sometimes professional ones, but also family and friends, to suit the characters he had in mind. He also chose the setting, costumes, and props to form a tableau. When all the details were ready, Rockwell directed the scene as if it were a movie. He often demonstrated the poses and facial expressions he wanted the models to use. Rockwell believed details were an important part of effectively communicating his ideas. Props often provided context for the situation and biographical detail about the characters. Rockwell explained that every single object shown in a picture should contribute directly to the central theme. All other things should be ruthlessly discarded. When Rockwell was creating a historical or period piece, he would research the clothing, the technology, and the other details to make his image more authentic. He also liked to use actual places such as classrooms, sports fields, train cars and cafes as sets for his scenes. Again, he believed the real thing contributed to the authenticity of the image. For example, when he was commissioned to illustrate new editions of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer, he went out to Hannibal, Missouri to make sure his paintings were accurate. Wow. Which is commitment to the bit. Uh, archivist Corey Kanzenberg said that Rockwell's models were usually his neighbours. Uh, Mary Whalen Leonard was nine years old and Rockwell asked her to pose for A Day in the Life of a Girl. Um, she told CBS, I loved the idea of being told a story and then being a part of it. Uh, she actually appeared on three Saturday evening post covers, including Girl with a Black Eye. And Rockwell had to work pretty hard to uh, to get her to grin. She said, he gets down on his hands and knees and he starts banging the floor and doing all these antics to make me laugh. And eventually I do it. Spielberg has said of, of Rockwell, you know, I've often admired Rockwell for how tough it is sometimes to get kids to be natural, which is what we were talking about before with, um, you know, obviously with, with, with Jaws. Sadly, Rockwell didn't have a chance to see the extent of his influence on George Lucas and Steven Spielberg or even to reflect their impact on pop culture in his own work, which is obviously, you know, often often captured the pop culture of the time. Yeah. Um, his last work was 1976's Spirit of 76, and he died of emphysema in 1978, aged 84. He did live on, though, um, in an episode of George Lucas's Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Uh, a young Rockwell was portrayed by actor Lucas Haas. So you probably know him. He's the guy who's in a lot of early Leo DiCaprio movies he's part of leo's crew Mm. um in the episode paris september 1908 in which rockwell who i guess would have had to have been about 14 produces a sketch in the style of one of pablo picasso's works that is so good picasso claims it as his own um so i guess it's lucas giving the ultimate validation albeit fictional um to an artist that so often had been looked down upon by the critics that lined (laughs) up to praise picasso that's rather great i can't remember seeing that episode of young indy um, I probably have. I think I've seen them all, but it's been so long. It it might actually have been a nod to uh, a real Rockwell work, The Connoisseur, that re- that required the illustrator to ape Jackson Pollock's abstract expressionist style. So this was something he'd actually done in real life. Yeah, yeah. If Rockwell had been a filmmaker, I mean, he he might have created slices of Americana capable of standing up against the likes of American Graffiti or even E.T. Uh, but Spielberg, for one, is glad that he didn't. 
Um, Spielberg told Eye Level, I think if he had been a filmmaker, he'd have been a great filmmaker and he would have been a famous filmmaker. But thank God he wasn't a filmmaker. Thank God he painted pictures to inspire other filmmakers to do better work. I think that's what Rockwell has done for all of us who love him and appreciate his paintings. He's made us better artists. Subtext. I don't need the competition. (laughs) Thank you very much. <laughs> I just stay out of my ballpark, please, Norman. Exactly. Yeah. We, we could be uh, we could be watching Netflix series inspired by eighties Norman Rockwell movies right now <laughs> instead of eighties Steven Spielberg movies. Yes. Uh, you know, like I've said before, he he nearly was a filmmaker. He did everything except create a moving image. You mm. know? But yeah, uh, you know, he, the way he set up those uh, those shoots, yeah, it sounds like if if he'd actually given a couple of them some lines of dialogue or it would have been you know, fine yeah, yeah and, and, and set up a motion picture camera rather than a static camera he would have been yeah he would have been off and running yeah he had all the the parts in place and he clearly knew how to direct people to get the best out of them really. yeah so, exactly yeah. in a piece in the Oregonian Steve Dewan wrote a few lines on Orphan on the Train uh, which is another Rockwell that Spielberg has in his uh, prodigious collection it ran with a 1951 story in Good Housekeeping called Good Boy by Mary McSherry, uh, and it depicts a train of survivors of an orphanage fire and their attendant nuns disembarking at a train platform and a prospective mother stopping and locking eyes with a young boy in a nun's arms. Dewan writes, Spielberg was drawn, he says, to the hesitancy of the adoptive mum, the delicacy of her body position, the distance between her and the child. That is the drama and the pathos and the passion of the story. That drama, pathos, and passion, inexorably bound, is Rockwell's legacy. His, Spielberg reminds us, was a benign but important agenda, a desire for community, an appreciation of responsibility and patriotism, and the lifelong conviction that the key to understanding our nation was to embrace our neighbour. That's, um, that paint, that one got me. Mm. I don't think I'd seen that one until I started researching for this episode. Mm. And yeah, it kind of got me. Like, there's, it's a, a really emotive painting, that one. Mm. Yeah, so we're to- we're talking about a lot of art here, which is you know, look as 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 magically as I'm sure we've described it for the uh, in the theatre of the mind for the listener uh, following along. It, it it really would be better if you could see them. So um, you could either you know obviously just Google any of the names we've mentioned in the pod, um, or if you Google Force Material Norman Rockwell. Well, this will probably be the first result, but the second, the second result, the second result will probably be the the story I put up a couple of years back uh, that this pod was kind of loosely mm. based on, where we we uh, I it's went into resplendent it. with linkery. That's right. There's a lot yeah. of Norman Rockwell artwork in there, so most of the things we've talked about in this episode are also in that um, that blog post. If you want to check them out, imagine if you could create visual art just by talking about it on a podcast. Amazing, wouldn't that be good? Yeah, yeah. It's you can beam it straight into people's brains. And One day, Bass. You wouldn't have to make any effort at all. <laughs> anyone, anyone can be an artist, really. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, that's um, that's Norman Rockwell. Uh, his paintings are obviously going to be uh, one of the main attractions of the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art when it eventually opens, and I'm sure we'll. We'll get there and check it out one way or another. Yeah. As we said up the the top of the pod, there may or may not be another podcast in in a fortnight. Really depends on uh, on uh, on my internet connection in the Philippines. Uh, in the meantime, whether there's another episode uh, in a fortnight or not, you can drop us a line at uh, forcematerial at gmail dot com. Let us know your favourite Norman Rockwell painting. You can also find us at uh, we're at Force Material on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to get in touch with us 
there. If you are an appreciator of uh, of fine art and of the work of Norman Rockwell, then you'll probably also also appreciate the um, the fine art that went into the Force Material T-shirt mm. available now on tpublic.com, yes. he yep. says uncertainly. Now, we, um, if you're interested, we have a link in our Twitter bio. So head over there and uh, hit that link and get yourself some sweet uh, Force Material logo branded merch. That's right. That's not uh, limited to t-shirts. That's right. There's uh, there's 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 hoodies. There's uh, there's there's coffee mugs. There's uh, onesies. You believe your baby has yeah, a Force Material? My, my baby has a Force He's Material. He's been onesie. indoctrinated <laughs> into this. Uh, yeah. So whatever whatever you're after, if you can imagine slapping the Force Material logo on it. Um, we've probably done it, and you can find it over at Tea Public. I just got an email from them like tonight that said they are doing now double sided prints. So if you want like Force Material logo on your front and your back, well, you know you can do that. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah. So you, people will you, know whichever way you're heading down the street. If you want to be the meat in a Force Material sandwich, <laughs> actually that came out wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, those those things are available now. Uh, I'm Rowan Williams. I'm Baz McAllister. And you've just taken your first step into a larger world.